Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness toward us. Thank you for providing us a word that is clear, that is engaging to our minds. And I pray, Father, that as we look today at uh, the four Gospels that were written in the life of our Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity, that you will help us focus and to, to learn really and understand what these uh, four Gospels are all about. Thank you, and I pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You will see on your book that um, the author starts with a comment that, you know, there's one thing that Jesus didn't do was to write his own autobiography. <laughs> so a lot of what we know about Jesus' life really comes from outside sources from himself. Uh, we have a lot of historical documents uh, that even have a value to say that Jesus really existed. But most of what we have about Jesus' life are present in the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four books, they comprise almost half of the entire New Testament. So it's, it's a big chunk of, of text that we're looking at. So in this first lecture, I want to answer the questions, what is the Gospels? What, what are the Gospel? Or what is the Gospel genre? And are they like the modern biographies, or are they different? And if they're, they're different, in what ways? Um, there's a lot of questions that we have about the Gospels because not ev it, they don't include everything. What about the young ears? of our Lord Jesus. It really doesn't talk a whole lot about that, right? Why do these four Gospels not always follow the same chronological order? If you try to put them together, it, it, it's kind of hard to piece it um, because it doesn't seem that they have it in a chronological sequence. So we need to understand as much as possible about the genre of Gospel in order to read and study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in a way that it's not uh, inappropriate and not consistent with um, how God revealed to us through the Holy Spirit in his word. So let's jump right in here in the term gospel. It, it translates the Greek word evangelion, which means good news. I, I think most of you are familiar already with uh, this translation, it, but in the past, that word gospel or good news, it was used mostly for military campaigns um, or a political uh, victory or a military victory. But the New Testament started using this word to refer primarily to the life of Christ. And so we have uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, the gospel of God, that's why I'm here, uh, is to give you the, the good news of God. Paul referring to the confession of faith in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the gospel which I received, I am um, imparting to you. So it is easy to see why the early Christians would eventually refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the Gospels. But how did the Holy Spirit inspire the New Testament authors, um, and later on they became known as evangelists, uh, these four 
Gospels to present or communicate this good news. While the correct interpretation depends on correct identification of what kind of communication was being used here in this genre. So first and foremost, the Gospels are stories, and everybody loves a good story. I, I remember picking up books um, in high school that we had to read, you know, for the different years. And, oh, it was, there was this one particular book that I hated. It, it was a lot of unfamiliar words to me, and I, I couldn't really figure out what was happening. And then, you know, but I, I persevered and kept reading. I postponed it, and then another year I tried that book, and I wasn't able to really grasp its meaning. And I had a teacher that, oh my goodness, she was so good at, she would open up the book and just read it and almost like express everything that was going on. So even though I didn't know some of these words, the story was just captivating, and I was, what is happening? This is exciting. And by the third year, I finally understood what the book was all about, and and it connected with me because it was talking about, you know, a, a, a time in the past where people lived in an agricultural environment. So I had all these memories from my childhood where I used to visit my grandparents or, you know, uncles that live in the countryside. So it, it's engaging because it connects with us. So some of the stories in the uh, New Testament narrative of the Gospels really engages us because it, it's, it strikes a chord. It, it, it reminds us of the human experience. So uh, the Gospels are powerful because they are stories. But what kind of stories are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were viewed early on as the stories of Jesus drawn from the personal experience of the apostles. So in his first apology, Justin Martyr, who was a, an apologist um, in the second century, he lived from the year 100 to 165, he characterizes the Gospels as memoirs of the apostles. It, it sounds like the authors were writing biographies of Jesus. But when you read the Gospels, you immediately notice that they're somewhat different than the modern biographies that we read. Now, I want to turn to you and, and say, in what ways do you think they're different? Then, you know, if you pick some, for instance, to read a, a biography of John MacArthur or Charles Spurgeon, why, how are they different than the biographies that we have in the Gospels? Maybe if you read the chapter, you might remember some of the things. But what are some elements that maybe might be missing on, um, on the Bible compared to the modern biographies? Jenny. <laughs> So Jenny talked about a ti the timing of things, how they, you know, one thing follows the other and then another. With the Gospels, sometimes you, they're not always in the, in the chronological order. They might seem a little disjointed compared to that. So what else? What are some things that you... Steve? 
Yeah, so if you're reading a biography, uh, a modern biography, you would find a lot of things for the entire life. So you can actually see the years. Oh, these were the first 10 years. These were the, you know, in his early 20s and then the early 30s and, and so forth until the other person dies. Um, as you read the Gospels, you feel like a lot of it is just devoted to the last week or even the last um part of Jesus's ministry instead of, you know, having a whole, very descriptive. And um, the, Steve uses the word there more, I think he was referring to the, the themes. It's more thematic the way it is organized um, instead of being chronological. So, Ricky. Yeah, very good. Ricky is mentioning for those of you who weren't able to hear that it's interesting that it doesn't talk a whole lot about Jesus' family. I mean, it's mentioned that there's some parts in there that it's, it's mentioned, um, but really it, a lot of it was kind of implied to the people that were, you know, they were writing to during that time. Um, but he didn't say, so-and-so is cousin to this person and to that and uh, the fam- familial relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, Ricky, made the point here of we don't know when Jesus' dad died, Joseph, right? Uh, at some point, we just see Mary in the story, so we kind of assume that he died. We don't know when that happened. Was that? before Jesus' ministry, or was that after, you know, during, or what, you know, there's a lot of uh, unknowns, um, and sometimes church history fill in some of those gaps to us based on tradition, but we really can't fully trust because we had a lot of um, people trying to make up their own story about Jesus, right? So, very good. Yeah, Lindsay? Yeah, uh, Lindsay's bringing the audience element of the Gospels, that different Gospels had in mind different peoples. Obviously, we all benefit from, from reading it, but modern biographies tend to be more broad in their, um, with the people that they're trying to reach. 
Now, we're going to spend some time on the audience, uh, the importance of why certain authors gave emphasis to this and not to that, and uh, this will be interesting. Next week, we will talk about more on audiences. All right, what else? I'm, I'm enjoying this. Michael. Michael mentioned the appearance of Jesus is not really described a whole lot, uh, apart from his crucifixion, right, that he looked pretty <laughs> um, beaten up. So, yeah, what else? Um, here's another thing. Uh, we read biographies. Normally, you have some of the psychological analysis. What, what was the personality of the person like, right? Uh, what we call a psychological description of the the person that they're talking about. We don't really see in a lot of the Gospels a, a description of what Jesus is thinking. There are moments where, um, you know, maybe Jesus shared with them. Uh, when there's some statements where it says, because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So it's like you're, it's giving you some insight that those around him didn't know <laughs> that he knew, but the author is giving you that some of that insight. But it really doesn't talk a whole lot of what was he like? Was he funny? Was he? I mean, there are some parts where he uses some <laughs> comic language and irony, right? Um, so good. Now the word gospel. We think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but during church history, some uh, people that had some non-canonical books that are not part of the Bible, the Apocrypha, that also took on the name of the Gospels. And I included that in your notes because um, I am certain that you might come across someone that will ask you, oh, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Is that a real thing, and so that's why I included those things so you have an idea. So none of these adopted the same genre of the four canonical Gospels. Some, like the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, were not narratives, but a collection of numerous sayings allegedly from Jesus, loosely strung together with almost no connections between them. So others took narrative form but focused only on one small portion of Jesus' life, such as his childhood. For example, the infancy gospel of Thomas. Um, then other ones focused on his death and resurrection. Uh, for example, the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Nicodemus. Still others resembled the extended treatises on Jesus' post-resurrection teachings for his disciples. So that was the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. Now, um, I did put a chart there just so you're familiar what these Gospels are about. But one thing I want to warn you is that most of these documents clearly came from unorthodox factions of early Christianity, usually Gnostics. Remember, the Gnosticism really took root in the, the second century 
And so they use some of these stories to favor their own theological agenda. Um, that's why we, we look at, you know, you can try to look from a historical standpoint, but really it is not inspired and actually contradicts the scripture. They contain various teachings or beliefs. They're legendary or incom incompatible with the claims of the canonical gospels. It is interesting that if you start reading them, you, you realize soon enough, this doesn't sound like Bible. Um, I remember, not on the, in the Gospels, but we were required to read, um, when we were in Israel, to read some of the Apocrypha book from the intertestamental period. So after the Old Testament canon was closed and the New Testament started being written, there were these books, the Maccabees, and you read the stories, it's like, boy, this is a really kind of a hero story, you know, and, and people praying to the dead, and they're advocating that. It's like this, you know, Scripture never encourages people to pray to the dead, and let alone exalt that as a practice. So uh, it's, it's clear that those Apocrypha are very distinct from the inspired four Gospels. So therefore, in the early centuries, Christianity, the word gospel did not refer primarily just to these four. There might be others that took that name. But it is obvious, however, from a superficial, even a superficial study of the four gospels, that these books all have much in common, both in form and content. That's why they are classified together. But you see the distinctions throughout most of church history's Christians have thought of the Gospels as biographies of Jesus. But in the modern era, these identification have, has been widely rejected because they're trying to fit in what, what, is, what does a biography look like, right? And they want to fit in into that agenda. Um, Mark and John say nothing at all about Jesus' birth, childhood, or young years. Uh, in Mark's account, we first encounter Jesus when he arrives at the Jordan River as a full-grown adult uh, to be baptized, uh, Mark 1.9. But he tells us nothing about Jesus. He doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' birth or boyhood. Luke and Matthew include selected incidents related to his birth and one episode about his teachings in the temple at the age of 12. But otherwise, they are too silent. I mean, until Jesus is literally 30, a 30-year-old, 30 you don't have a whole lot there. So it's a big gap. On the other hand, all four Gospels devote a disproportionately large space for the last few weeks and days of Christ's life, as uh, Stephen was mentioning there. The main events of Jesus' ministry appear in different order in the different Gospels, um, and rarely they are told how much time has elapsed between them. Um, our, actually, our English translation doesn't help much sometimes when they translate uh, a lot of it as then when they sh should have just translated, therefore this happened. And, and it causes confusion because then you think, oh, this happened just after this thing. But then you're trying to reconstruct, it's like, no, there was, a gap here of probably a few months or a year because the authors decided to organize how they, they wanted it to see. So the gospel writers arrange Jesus' actions topically instead of chronologically and report what Jesus says in a variety of ways. 
You also note that when you read the Gospels, it is unlike most modern biographies um, in the percentage that is taken just talking about Jesus' death, right? Like how just describing uh, even to a, a minutial detail of after he passed and then this being speared, just things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think a, a biographer would divulge time in describing. Also, you find anything like a detailed psychological analysis I just mentioned here. It is easy to see that the four Gospels differ considerably from most modern biographies. A common view, then, in modern scholarship has suggested that the four evangelists, in essence, created a new genre when they composed the Gospels. But a substantial number of studies have again linked the Gospels with the Hellenistic biographies. So for our modern era, that kind of style it might seem a little different. But from the biographies of that time, actually, there is a lot in there in common. So the Hellenistic biographies in the early readers were thrown off track because conventions for writing biography in the ancient Greco-Roman world did not always correspond to modern standards. So the Hellenistic biographers did not feel compelled to present all the periods of someone's life or narrate everything in chronological order. They selected events carefully in order to teach certain moral lessons or promote a particular ideology. And they frequently focus on a person's death because they believe that the way people died revealed much about their character. The material between the main character's birth and death includes stories and sayings selected and arranged by the author to tell the audience something important about that character. So, and, and this is actually re reminds us a lot of the New Testament. It, it's very similar in, in these terms. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Let's see here. The Gospel of Luke actually has a, an element here from Hellenistic type of biographies. They have a little prologue or an introduction to that, the way he wrote, from what resources did he draw material from? So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, so he's talking about what? Written sources. Some people had already written and documented some things about the historical, uh, you know, the, the life and history of Jesus. So just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So you have also word of mouth uh, that was retelling the stories. And we were there. We saw the soldiers spearing him, his side. Uh, we, we saw people weeping, the woman at the foot of the cross. And, and so they, will narrate, he, they were describing those things. And it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out 
for your consecutive order most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is he tries to the best of his ability to keep things in a chronological order. Sometimes he will arrange them thematically so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. I do appreciate that he makes a comment there, you know, I did a careful investigation. This is, you know, it's a source material. <laughs> he doesn't mention his sources, but he does say, you know, I, I did my investigation. Um, it, it wasn't just one source. Um, he probably interviewed uh, some of the apostles, probably had conversations with Mary. Right? It is, there's a lot in the Gospel of Luke um, that probably only Mary would have known about these things. And Joseph, if, if he wasn't alive, right? But um, often the writers of the Gospels arrange Jesus' action topically. So that's a good, uh, a good thing here for us to keep in mind. Um, these rem reminds us of some ancient Jews and Greeks and Roman writings, such as Josephus, Herodotus, um, Tacitus, Arian. So all these, these people that wrote history, if you compare some of their writings with the Gospels, you will find a lot of similarities because it reflects the writing style of the time. Of course, if a gospel is about Jesus, by that criteria, it will differ from Hellenistic biographies. Um, this scholar offers a judicious survey of modern proposals concerning the gospel genre, and he says, and I quote, Formally, a gospel is a narrative account concerning the public life and teaching of a significant person that is of discrete traditional units placed in the context of scripture. Now, materially... The genre consists of the message that God was um, at work in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, affecting his promises found in the scripture. So there's an explanation here. This seems best to us, too, to say formally the gospel have a lot of parallels. So in the form, in the structure, it has a lot of parallels with the writing style of that time. But materially, in substance, they prove uniquely Christian. Perhaps it's best then to call these theological biographies. That's the key term here. The evangelists are telling us the story of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. They're not simply recording historical facts. They're speaking of God incarnate. They're telling the story to teach their readers something about the person and mission of Jesus. The gospel writers selected and arranged their material about Christ to communicate theological truth to their audience. So all storytelling, this is in your um, book there, all storytelling is storytelling for a particular purpose. The purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is thoroughly Christ-centered. They, they're not... You know, he's not going to take a detour here to give you a character analysis of Mary or of Joseph or of Peter, even though some of the Gospels will give you a lot on, on Peter. But really, the fo focal point of the Gospels is Jesus Christ's life. Um, that's why sometimes we call them Christological biographies, because they focus on the person of Christ. So... Then this brings us to two purposes of 
the Gospels, and here they are. They have selected and arranged material to tell the story of Jesus. And second, through the story of Jesus, they're saying something important to their first readers and then to us, obviously, that we have it available. Since the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire the Gospels in this way, we need to adopt a way of reading them that matches the method used by the Gospel writers. So if we ought to understand how to read the Gospels, we ought to understand what are some of the, these elements that are present in um, the, the writing of the Gospels. All right. So next week, we'll spend a lot of time just seeing unique characteristics, the use of irony, the use of exaggeration, the use of parables. These are all common characteristics of the, uh, the Gospels. Now, I do want to answer this question here because, it, it, so this class, I would say, is more apologetic in a sense, um, to answer questions that people might have about the Gospels. What about these discrepancies? How about these differences that Mark has with Luke or with John? John is very different than all of them, right? How do we answer that? You will notice the difference, and, and we really have four different versions of the one story of Jesus. For those of us who seem fixated on chronological strictness, the variety can cause problems. For example, how do we understand Matthew and Luke switching the order of the second and third temptation of Jesus? So if you compare Mark and Luke, Matthew and Luke, you will see that the three temptations that, this, that Satan tempted Jesus, they are not in the same order. Why, why is that? On a larger scale, you will sometimes find considerably variation in, order, in the order of the same events as presented in the first three Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Uh, they're called synoptic because they're very similar to each other. And John is a whole different, there's a lot of things in John that doesn't, is not present in the other three Gospels. So they're called synoptic from uh, the Greek word sin, meaning together, meaning together, and optic, which means see. So they're seen together. They're very similar. John often takes a different course altogether. Uh, I put there a chart just to compare the three Gospels, and they're the closest, right, in terms of um, uh, similarities in language and the events that they narrate. But even there, you will find some things, in, especially here in the Gospel of Mark, that there is no parallel. Look at the centurion of Capernaum. That narrative is not present in Mark, but it is in Matthew and Luke. Or um, following of Jesus in chapter 8, 18 to uh, 22, it is not present in the Gospel of Mark either. You will also find a variety of wording that is different to refer to the same speech that Jesus gave. Compare, for instance, Matthew 5, 3, where he says, Blessed are the poor in the spirit with Luke 6, 20, where he says, Blessed are you who are poor. So there is differences in wording. Why is that? Stay on your seat, because I'll have an answer here for it. <laughs> Notice the difference, the interchange between Jesus and the high priest um, on, at his trial. Uh, let's, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, 63. 
And when you're comparing, it is kind of hard because you have to be flipping pages and like, well, I already forgot what I read. And then, so they came up with um, these um, little books. They're very easy to find. It's called The Harmony of the Gospels, which they'll put the Gospels side by side in columns to help you to try to piece it together. Oh, I see where Matthew is here. So you can't really see here from a distance, but I... I'm going to pass it um, to you, and you will see those columns side by side. Um, sometimes you'll have all four Gospels describing the same events, and you'll have four columns. Sometimes you'll have three. Sometimes you have two. Sometimes you only have one column because um, only one of them is narrating that, that story. So I'll pass it here so you can take a look at it. But Matthew chapter 26, verse 63 through 64. Someone can read that one for us? Actually, no, let me read it. Otherwise, it won't be recorded. (laughs) It says, uh, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right, now turn to Mark 14, verses 61 and So Mark 14, verse 61, he says, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. In the previous one, he said, You have said it yourself. right? And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the Gospel of Mark. Let's look, let's take a look at uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 22, and looking at verse 67 through 70. Even the uh, reporting of the... um, of the high priest here, he says, if you're the Christ, tell us. Right? In the previous versions, they were much longer, but he said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So you see the difference. It seems obvious that we have in the four Gospels it's not a result of someone taking notes. Okay, he said this. And then he looked at Matthew and said, well, you know, I just missed that one word. And, you know, it, it, or they didn't have cell phones to be recording it or, or taking pictures and following Jesus around. So that didn't happen. Um, so a lot of it was relaying on their memories. 
What should we make then of all of this? We should begin by recognizing that the gospel writers, like any reporter or historian, could not tell all there was to tell about Jesus. You know, they can be exhaustive in all of their memories to, you know, of every single event. I mean, we read in John chapter 21, I think this is a good passage for us to, to look at, John 21, in verse 25, the apostle John makes an interesting statement there, concluding his gospel. He says, and there were many, also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So there were a lot of things that happened that really it, it wasn't told uh, in the gospel. So it's not exhaustive, um, but it is comprehensive. It, it, comprehend, it involves and, and describes most of what was relevant. You can read Jesus' longest speeches, such as the Sermon on the Mount in chapter, Matthew chapter 6 through 7, in a matter of minutes. And yet, when he often spoke to the crowds when he was teaching, he was teaching them for hours. Enough that they would be hungry and that they would need food <laughs> because they were sitting for a long time listening him teach. But you read that sermon like, you know, it's nothing. So keep in mind that they, the biblical writers, were not exhaustive in their writing. As ancient biographers, the gospel writers felt free, felt free to paraphrase or summarize what Jesus said or, or to arrange the events according to a particular theme rather than according to a strict chronological sequence. As we just read here in his prologue, Luke, uh, I'll go in a little bit, his prologue, Luke admits his use of eyewitnesses' testimony and careful research in retelling the story of Jesus. The goal of that gospel, the gospel writers was to tell the story of Jesus in a faithful, and this is important, a key word here, in a faithful yet relevant and persuasive manner for their readers. Rather than viewing the differences between the accounts as errors in reporting, we should see them as illustrations of different theological purposes and emphasis that the gospel writers wanted to give. So each gospel writer had a theological agenda in mind in reporting these things and even selecting some of the wording to present that um, facet. Now, it's helpful as you look even to a uh, gospel harmony, as you piece them together, oh, that speech was actually a lot longer than um, Matthew-related or Luke-related. Once we realize that the evangelists were operating under the ancient rather than the modern literary rules, many of the so-called discrepancies between the Gospels fade away. Um, and there are other examples here, but I, I want to turn to you and see if there are uh, questions, and, and then I, will, I have a question of my own here for you. Um, Andrew, I don't remember if Ricky went first or Andrew. Go ahead. Uh, no. Looking at, at eyewitness accounts as something you would see in a court of law, mm -hmm. doesn't that also help to explain 
Very good. So Andrew uh, spoke of, you know, in our modern times, we do have, you know, different witnesses, for instance, in a court law, um, where they would have given their statements, they not necessarily match up, but it doesn't mean that they're contradictory. It just means that they had some details that they paid attention, and others paid attention to other kind of details. And if we give them grace, right, uh, for a judge to try to piece those things together, why is that we don't give the same grace to the biblical writers? I, and I do think, Andrew, that really comes from a heart of pride, you know, that put themselves above the inspired word of God and say, you know, I got to criticize how they did this writing here. But if you approach Scripture with a the spirit of humility will say, this is God's inspired word. It might seem contradictory, but I, I need to be humble and maybe see what, what was going on. I think about the example, this is a, uh, you know, a classic one, is um, the, the healing of the blind man who was at Jericho. And the different accounts, one says that he was at the entrance of Jericho, and the other one says a different location. Well, you got to see who was it written to. Was it for a Jewish population or for the Gentile population? And, and that helps you because, you know, the way that they described, described Jericho was a modern Jericho or was an old ancient Jericho. There were, you know, different sites of the city. Or one says that was two blind men. And the other says there was one blind man who, was, who kept yelling, Jesus, son of David, has mercy on me. Well, could it be that the one that described just one of the writers was because he wanted to emphasize that the guy was yelling? The other was quiet. He just by default got healed. <laughs> um, but the, the one was yelling at, uh, you know, screaming and asking for help. Jesus. So we approach scripture with a spirit of humility. And, and instead of trying to find discrepancies or contradictions, we say, you know, this is God inspired. And he is going to use different authors with different personalities, with different agendas to what they want to convey. All right. That's good, good um, discussion there. Ricky?
Yeah, very good. So um, Ricky was speaking of his own personal testimony going to a, a non-Christian college uh, in California where uh, he took a Bible class, <laughs> surprisingly enough. And um, in the perspective that they're looking is purely from a textual standpoint. And this thing called textual criticism or analysis, uh, textual analysis where, um, you know, grammarians and historians look through the text from a purely historical grammatical standpoint and trying to reconstruct and say, oh, you see how those are similar? Maybe they borrowed from each other. Maybe they exchanged stories, you know? And I, I don't even think there's a, I have a problem with the thought of, you know, the apostles talking to each other. Hey, I, you know, I'm thinking to <laughs> include this one here. Um, but ultimately, we have to rely that the Holy Spirit intended, superintended these men. They did not write just on their own volition. Uh, you know, there is a, a, a spiritual element in the inspiration. Right? That, that's what makes the Bible the Bible, <laughs> uh, the, the unique book that it is. And I think it is helpful what, what Ricky is saying here. Uh, many of you might end up in going to a secular school or even a Christian school 
with some liberal leanings that might come and put into question the authenticity of Scripture. I'll, I'll come in a little bit here. Because this is what our next section here, historical trustworthiness. There is a widespread belief that only a small portion of the canonical Gospels preserve accurate historical information about the actual words and deeds of Jesus and his companions. These led to the development of tradition criticism, or the criteria of authenticity, for tracing the group, the growth of the Jesus tradition. In this view, the tradition ranges from fairly authentic sayings and factual narratives to more, and this is where the danger lies, to the more complex combination of history and legend and myth. So they look at a scripture and say, well, there may be some things that are true here, but there are also a bunch of other things that are just myths or legends. For many scholars, only what they consider to be the earliest stage and more authentic material is normative for Christians today. A well-known example, I don't know what year, uh, Ricky, you went to school, but a well-known example of that was the Jesus Seminar that happened in the 1990s, which gained notoriety during that time for its two books that color-coded all the sayings and narratives of Jesus in the five Gospels. One of them was the historical Jesus, right? They were trying to reconstruct the real Jesus because the Gospels did not the real Jesus putting into question um, the content of the Gospels. And they even included the Gospel of Thomas in that, in that story, the whole. Um, and they concluded that only 18% of the sayings in the Bible was actually, the Gospels was actually from Jesus. Or, and then 16% of the narratives of Jesus actually reflected something he said or did in a reasonably accurate form. Now, even by, before I get to, to, you know, replying to this, we have to keep in mind that, you know, you read the New Testament letters, you need the book of Acts, you read Revelation, and you find a seamless connection between them. They do refer back to events in the life of Jesus. They're actually in the books, in the, in the Gospels. The problem with this approach is an attempt to force the Gospels to fit in with modern conventions for writing history and biography. Instead, they must be evaluated according to the standards of that day. For example, they frequently employ paraphrases rather than direct quotation. And it's so interesting because they pick a you know, piece of, of historical uh, narrative you know, uh, or even a, uh, a writing or a fiction from that time period, and they don't question it. In that there is, oh, this is not a direct quotation from Pluto <laughs> or Plutarch. They don't question that. Why, why is that? But they question why scripture is not using direct quotation. Well, neither Greek or Aramaic used quotation marks or felt the need for it. But if you think about it, even readers today find much interpretation, abbreviation, and digest of long speeches and narratives topical as well as chronological arrangements of accounts and carefully selection of material to fit in the writer's particular theological emphasis. But once all of this is recognized, the gospel materials actually measure up quite well to the most valid criteria of authenticity. So I put a little chart there 
from a uh, Klein's book of interpretation. And the very last one he says, as to Jesus' word, we have the ipsima vox. This is a Latin term for his authentic voice. So whatever you read in Mark or in Luke, they are Jesus' authentic voice. They aren't exactly his very word. So they might, you know, take one word here and there. Maybe that's what they remember. Maybe that's what they wanted to really put the emphasis on. And there is freedom in that. If we, we expect this kind of freedom when we read modern biographies, right? And or in court laws. But why is that we don't expect the same freedom with the biblical writers? Uh, they're not contradicting each other. Um, I think about sometimes when I'm counseling, I try to take notes as much as possible. It's just a help to me that I keep, you know, track of what was said and what um, in sequency of events. And sometimes when I start counseling, people go and they hop from one event kind of like toward the end and then or an event that's like way in their childhood. And the way that they talk is like, oh, they're kind of happen one after the other. And, and so I ask clarifying questions. What? Okay, so when, what, what year did this happen? Oh, I don't remember. Maybe it was when I was high school. Uh, and what year does it happen? Oh, I was, you know, that was like when I was married. That was 20 years after. Oh, okay, now it makes sense. <laughs> but, it, you know, we, as we're speaking or writing, we tend to have selective memory because, we, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm connecting these two events here that might be really far removed from each other, but in my mind, they are connected. You know, so for, for the mind of the biblical rock, writers, we need to keep that in mind as well. Um, all of these type of changes are natural and common in ancient biographies and should, be, should cause no concern. But it is quite a different matter to allege that the entire sayings or narratives of the Gospels were created out of cloth, whole cloth and did not correspond with any recognizable fashion to what Jesus said or did. Such claims go far beyond what the evidence actually says. So I, I like these little principles here where it says different standards for quotation in the ancient world. That's how they did quotations back then. You know, it was not exact, exact word by word. Um, but there was a selective inclusion also of events. There is a thematic organization, not necessarily chronological. Some gospels, I think Luke is the most chronological uh, of all of them. Gospels are portraits of Jesus, not snapshots, right? They're, um, next week, uh, I'm going to bring to you a little chart that describes what was, what is the theme of the Gospel of Mark? What is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew? They all talk about Jesus, but they have a theme in mind. So that's why they would emphasize certain um, areas. All right, we're getting toward the end here, but I, I do want to get to... Um, this last section, and it's just to bring it all together, then how do we read the, um, you know, taking into consideration those differences and the similarities? Well, we, there's two ways of reading. One, horizontally, where you compare these texts side by side, and I, and I gave you a few charts in there, 
And you see what the harmony, a harmony of the Gospels do is putting this text side by side and you compare the, the differences and the similarities and you try to reconstruct that narrative. Often the distinctive emphasis of a given evangelist appear more clearly in those portions of an episode that he alone has chosen to record. Now, actually, this is a really neat feature. Why is that Matthew or Luke or John decided to include this in the sentence of Jesus? And the other didn't. That actually helps us to interpret that passage better. There is a point here that Luke is getting at, or Mark. Um, So, for example, uh, Matthew's version of the parable of the wicked tenants uniquely stresses the transfer of God's kingdom from Israel to the Gentiles in Matthew 21, a theme that reappears very often in that, that gospel. So sometimes the the biblical writers, they would have certain themes that they want to bring it up. So the way they will present is they will recall the elements from that episode in Jesus' life or some elements of his sayings that will bring those things together. In the resurrection narratives, for instance, only Mark highlights the fear and misunderstanding of Jesus' followers. A motive that that Chu distinctively under he underlines elsewhere in other chapters, and I, I even think about so Mark was um, written under the supervision of Peter. Um, you know, it's well known church history that Peter um, helped Mark to write the God, that his gospel. So I, you know, there are many moments that Peter experienced fear, and he was rebuked for misunderstanding Jesus. Right, so I wonder if that influence really made Mark, you know, an impression on the way that Mark wrote, because it is kind of the gospel from the perspective, from the eyewitnesses of of Peter. There are many other examples of this, but um, I want to skip here to the vertical reading of the Bible. All right, so the vertical reading should take priority over the thinking horizontally. So although there are advantages for you to compare these different passages that describe the same event or the same speech, when you're reading scripture like any other book of the Bible, you want to read it in its context. What is in the chapter before? What is in the chapter after it? This is called the vertical reading. You're, you start from the top, and then you go all the way to the bottom, and then you start again, the top to bottom. And so it's a vertical reading. Instead of comparing all these things and bringing them together, so thinking vertically should take priority over thinking horizontally. This means that any passage in the gospel should be interpreted in light of overall, the overall structure and themes of that gospel, despite the nature of any parallel accounts that appears in other gospels. Um, sometimes I see this with preachers, that they are, um, you know, they're preaching through the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark, whatever it is. And it is helpful for you to bring the parallel accounts, but sometimes you see preachers going totally off and, and preaching the harmony of the four gospels. 
No, you're preaching through Mark. The Holy Spirit used Mark to convey that specific message. When you start bringing this parallel text, you ought to be careful not to discharacterize what to characterize what Mark was trying to convey. Does that make sense? Um, so we ought to be careful. In other words, it is more important to read down the columns of a synopsis than across them. Frequently, the gospel writer groups passages topically and thematically rather than chronologically because he does have an, a, an agenda in mind. So I, I put it here in observation. Thematic groupings in the gospel are so common that it's best not to assume that two episodes um, that appear next to each other are in chronological order unless the text actually says. You know, sometimes the gospel of Mark will say, after this, this happened. And then this happened. So that's clear that it's in chronological order. And then, as I mentioned, our English Bibles may not always help us Sometimes, because they translate the words for and and therefore, and does not necessarily mean after, right? They translate it as then and now. So that might make some confusion. In other instances, even when passages occur in chronological order, the gospel writers seem likely to have included and omitted material because of thematic parallels and contrasts. So I'm just giving you here a kind of an intro to the reading of the Gospels. But keeping in mind these apparent discrepancies, what am I missing here? You know, look at the harmony of the Gospels or, or think, try to reconstruct, why is that Mark chose to write this way and not that way? Why Luke did this and not that? Um, it, it just bolsters our confidence, right? And the fact that, why is that there are four Gospels and not three and not four? Um, we think about the teachings in the Old Testament that by the witnesses of two or three witnesses, every, every truth will be established. And we have not two or three, but we have four witnesses of Jesus' life. So it, it should increase our confidence in reading of the Gospels. Let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the wonder that it is that we have historical descriptions of your life. Lord, what, what would I give to just stay one day and, and go back in time and, and see those things? Lord, I know that that's not possible, even though my heart yearns for it. We're thankful that we have your very words that you inspired to bring us back in time and relive the life of our Lord. Lord, maybe we, may we be encouraged by, by the reading of your word in the Gospels. May we be encouraged by what you said and how you said it. May we be encouraged in how you um, posed yourself even and interacted with the disciples. Many times, Lord, we see ourselves on the, in the shoes of, of those men that were slow to understand and to make the connections that you wanted them to make. I pray, Father, that you would increase our confidence 
in your word and, and increase our desire to really understand that all the more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.